If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Thomas Carlyle said the history of the world is but the biography of great men. Well, it's not. It's the biography of great men and great women. That was Jenny Murray talking to us about her new book, A History of Britain in 21 Women. The school was enveloped in this sludge full of stones, which hit the school at about 70 or 80 miles an hour. It was like a tsunami. And that was Steve Humphreys recounting the events of the Aberfan disaster of 1966. listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe, or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our third podcast of October 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Jenny Murray, an author and broadcaster who's been a long-standing presenter of BBC Radio 4's Women's Hour. Jenny is the author of a new book entitled A History of Britain in 21 Women, in which she selects a group of British women who challenged conventions and made significant changes to the country. She spoke to our acting deputy editor, Sue Wingrove. Now, Jenny, in your radio career as presenter of Women's Hour... You're famous for telling women's stories and letting their voices be heard. What prompted you to reach back into history to tell the stories of women from previous centuries? The reason I wanted to do it was I got very annoyed when I read something in a book called Raising Boys by Steve Bidolf, where he said it's important to remember that men built the planes, fought the wars, laid the railroad tracks, invented the cars, built the hospitals, invented the medicines and sailed the ships that made it all happen. And I thought, hang on a minute, this is not true. So let's have a look at a group of women who we could say, all right, what contribution have women made to the history of the world? Um, And I was only allowed 21. I could have done lots more (laughs) than 21. Um, But the publisher said, no, we can only fit in 21. So I did 21. And so no longer uh, is it true, you know, Thomas Carlyle said the history of the world is but the biography of great men. Well, it's not. It's the biography of great men and great women. Now, you write about uh, quite a disparate selection of women who were active in fields as diverse as politics, science and fashion. Do these women have anything in common? All they have in common, I think, is, number one, that they're women. And apart from Elizabeth I, and possibly, and sorry, I call her Bodicea because I hate the sound of Boudicca. Um, she's obviously first in the book. I mean, they to some degree, inherited their roles, although Queen Elizabeth I couldn't have been a more difficult road um, to the throne. 
her father had beheaded her mother uh, and she had a pretty tough youth as well. But the others, um, you know, people said, oh, why haven't you got the Queen in there? Why haven't you got Queen Victoria in there? I haven't because they were women who did inherit their roles and didn't have a particularly difficult road to their role in life. Um, But all the others uh, have made it entirely from their own efforts. Um, And that was what I thought was really important. Some of them have only got there really because they had supportive fathers. I mean, supportive fathers throughout history have clearly been extremely important. That's true, certainly, of Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, uh, Millicent Garrett Fawcett. Um, Ethel Smythe's father was not particularly encouraging when she said she wanted to go off to Germany and study music, but eventually he was persuaded. Um, And Margaret Thatcher, of course, is an absolute classic uh, who had a highly supportive father. She barely mentions her mother. So fathers have been really important to most of these women, but they have all achieved what they achieved from their own effort. And which single figure in this book has been the most profound inspiration to you personally? Look, I loved Bodicea from the moment I saw the Thornycroft statue, which is on the banks of the River Thames, when my parents brought me to London on a a trip uh, when I was a little girl. And we went around and saw General this and Lord this and King so-and-so. And suddenly there by the Thames was this statue of rearing horses and a woman totally in command of the horses and behind her two daughters. And that was the first time I ever saw an image of that type that said, whoa, look, women can be strong and powerful. Of course, it wasn't until much later that I understood why she had done what she'd done, which was the Romans had denied her her inheritance, uh, had beaten her and raped her daughters. So she, I find, incredibly inspiring. And she was the first woman to really excite me and make me think women can fight. Queen Elizabeth I, I fell in love with doing history lessons at school. Um, And I think it was the famous speech, you know, that she had the heart and stomach of a king, even though she appeared to only have the body of a weak and feeble woman. Um, And I adored her. And I, I mean, I love all of them really, they're all women who've inspired me. But the, what, my absolute favourite is Fanny Burney. Now, Fanny Burney is probably the least known of all the women. Um, she was a novelist. She was not a great novelist, although she was a great recorder of her time and was extremely well connected with the intelligentsia of London and her diaries are fantastic commentary on what was going on among the intelligentsia of London. But what I really, really admired about her was, you know, I had breast cancer 10 years ago and I tried to make it my business to share that experience, you know, not to be ashamed of using the word breast or cancer and to explain what it had been like so that other women perhaps would not be as frightened of it as certainly my mother had been. But Fanny Burney was diagnosed uh, in Paris. She was married to a Frenchman. Um, 
And she had a mastectomy without anesthetic. And she wrote in great detail to her sister about what had happened. She, of course, lived for another 20, 25 years after she had the operation. But I thought, my goodness, you know, the, the courage that it must have taken to go through the surgery. She writes of uh, the surgeons putting a piece of cambric material over her face so that she wouldn't see what was going on. But she said, she explains how she saw the glint of the steel uh, as the surgeon approached her with the knife because she could see through the cambric that they put over her face. And she describes what happened to her, to her sister. And it's a testament to a woman's courage and her her ability to explain what had happened to her and also hopefulness that, you know, even then you could have the surgery and survive it. I mean, I, I, I had no idea they were practising that sort of surgery at that time. Um, it must have been incredible. If you interviewed her today on Women's Hour, what would you say to Fanny Burney? I, I would want to know why she decided that she would do it because it, it it's clear from what she writes that it was something of an experiment. You know, the surgeons were the best surgeons in Paris, um, but it was obviously not something that had been done frequently before. Uh, and she describes to her sister um, a count from Paris of a terrible operation 1812. <laughs> Your heart just sinks before you read any of, of the details. Um, but I would I would want to know why she was prepared to write about it in such detail. How she imagined it would be read by future generations. And and what impact it had on the rest of her life that she had had this mastectomy. Um, but, you know, she lived for years and years and years after it. And um, I'd also want to know all kinds of things about her life in London. You know, she was a a favourite of, of Samuel Johnson's um, and she knew an awful lot about what was going on um, in the salons of intellectual London. And I've read her diaries, so I know an awful lot of what she has to um, communicate. But it would be, I, I imagine her as really good fun and really chatty and gossipy. And I'd learn an awful lot about what was going on from interviewing her. Going back to deciding who to choose um, and only being allowed 21 people, uh, women. How did you go about choosing that list? And um, who on earth did you leave out? Well, as I said, I've left out the Queen and Queen Victoria. Um, some people have asked me uh, about some of the people that I've left out. Uh, particularly Mary Stopes, I think people are surprised that Mary Stopes isn't in there because she did write a very, very important book, Married Love, which was really the first volume of advice about sex and, and contraception. But I've, I've always worried about her interest in eugenics 
so decided I wasn't going to include her. You know, I do say very clearly um, in the book that this is a, a personal selection um, and that there are many other women who could have been included. But I wanted, I certainly wanted Afra Ben uh, in there. I studied French and drama at university. Um, so I, I got through um, a, a drama degree course where nobody ever mentioned Afra Ben. Uh, who was the first woman in Britain to earn her living by her pen. Um, and she wrote really rather good plays. Uh, so I wanted Afra to be in there. Um, I wanted scientists in there because it's, ter- you know, the, I suppose the way I was envis- envisioning this book um, was that it, it, it's for all the young people who need to know. They need to know that there were important women who who did scientific work, who were musicians, who were poets, who were doing all the things that that for so long were considered only things that men should do. So that's how Caroline Herschel came to be in there. Mary Somerville came to be in there. Ada Lovelace. Um, you know, Ada Lovelace is such a fascinating young woman because for so long we've been told you know that science and and art can't mix but she of course is byron's daughter uh, her mother was a mathematician uh, and she did really important work in the development of the computer because she recognized that computing could do something more than just working out numbers um, that it could be used for artistic expression as well as for numerical calculations and oh boy was she right about that um so the scientists are there uh, of course the great feminists had to be in there um emmeline pankhurst naturally millicent garrett Fawcett, so that we've got the suffragists and the suffragettes um there's often debate, you know, who actually won the vote for us. Was it the suffragists or the suffragettes? And people always ask me, I'm, I'm president of the Forces Society. They always say, oh, would you have been a suffragette or a suffragist? And I like to think I would have been a suffragist um, using the power of argument uh, to persuade people of your cause and lobbying famous men in parliament to persuade them of your cause, I suspect I would have actually been a suffragette and would have chained myself to the railings at some point. Um, so they're, they're both in there. Ethel Smythe is in there because, um, you know, I, I don't think she's a great composer, but she was a very, very good composer. And I don't think there are very many men who are great composers either. You can count them on the fingers of one hand. Um, But she worked really hard to be known as a composer. And she was also a suffragette and she was imprisoned in Holloway for it. And uh, she wrote The March of the Women. Um, And then, of course, in modern times, Nancy Astor had to be there because she was, she's American, but she was the first woman to take her seat in the British Parliament. Constance Markievicz is in there. She was the first woman to be elected to the British Parliament, but didn't take up her seat because uh, Sinn Féin, the Irish revolutionary movement, uh, would not have uh, allowed her or would have said, no, 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 you can't uh, be part of the British 
parliament. Uh, but she's another, in a way like Bodicea, a woman who believed in her cause and was prepared to really fight for it, physically fight for it. Um, and Barbara Castle was my favourite MP ever, um, a fellow Yorkshire woman, um, always very funny, always absolutely full of opinions. Uh, and she was the one who said to me one day, oh, you know, Jenny, sometimes I think you young feminists go a bit far. Um, I, I don't care, you know, if they call me the chair or the chairman or the chairwoman or the chairperson, as long as I'm in the chair. <laughs> <laughs> a fascinating thing about this book is that you reach back to a uh, Bodicea or Boudicca, but you bring it right up to date and uh, you have Mary Quant and Nicola Sturgeon, who, of course, are both very much alive and very much making their presence felt in the world today. Um, you've interviewed them both for Women's Hour. Who else from the, your 21 people have you interviewed? Uh, I've interviewed Margaret Thatcher. Uh, I've interviewed Barbara Castle. Uh, Nancy Astor has been interviewed on Women's Hour, but not by me. You know, I, I, Women's Hour is having its 70th anniversary on the 7th of October, but I haven't been presenting it for 70 years. Um, I've only been presenting it for, I think it's 29 years now. Um, but uh, Mary Quant, Nicholas Sturgeon, yeah. Um, and I suppose Margaret Thatcher was the most frightening interviewee I've ever encountered because I think it was her great delight to catch journalists out with being slightly loose with the facts. It would delight her to be able to tear you limb from limb. So I've never been so well researched as I was when I went to interview her. Um, but she also gave me one of the worst moments I've ever had on uh, the radio when after she'd published her autobiography and she'd been deposed, she agreed to come into the Women's Hour studio rather than me going to her. I mean, when she was prime minister, I'd always gone to meet her in Downing Street. Um, and I really wanted finally to ask her what it had been like to be the woman prime minister, which she always denied. You know, I'm I am not a woman prime minister. I am the prime minister, was her mantra. Um, but I, I fought my way through this really rather dull autobiography, trying to find out if there was any hint of how this constant reference to her gender had really affected her. And there was one reference to it. And that was when she'd taken over and she met her first cabinet and they were all, you know, the great old men of the Conservative Party. And she said they treated her as if she was the cleaning lady. So, of course, she sacked a lot of them and brought in her own boys who weren't going to treat her like the cleaning lady. So I thought, ah, there we are. I've got a hint here. So I put together a question that, that included that quotation and also included the fact that people always referred to her giving people a handbagging. Well, nobody ever says a man has given somebody a briefcasing. Um, and that Alan Clark in his memoirs had said how much he'd lusted after her finally turned ankles during Prime Minister's questions. Um, and that President Mitterrand had described her as having 
the eyes of Caligula and the lips of Marilyn Monroe. So I asked the question, and the following Sunday, the reviewer of the Sunday Times said it was the only time ever his radio had frozen over. Now, she just didn't say anything. She just looked at me as if I were a complete lunatic. So I had to rapidly think of another question to move the interview on. But it always puzzled me. Why did she simply say nothing? I'd never seen her lost for words ever. And what I realized later was that Bernard Ingham had been such a powerful and controlling press officer. He'd obviously just put in front of her the stuff from the papers that she really needed to know. And these kind of comments, like the briefcasing, like the constant references, like the Mitterrand quote, she heard it from me for the first time, and I shocked her into silence. That was Jenny Murray. A History of Britain in 21 Women is out now in the UK, published by One World. In the US, it's due to be published next month by the same publisher. Now, 50 years ago this week, on the 21st of October 1966, one of the worst tragedies of 20th century Britain took place, when a coal tip collapsed close to the Welsh village of Abervan, killing 144 people. Tonight, the 20th of October, a new documentary is due to air on BBC4, entitled Surviving Abervan, that features first-hand memories from those affected by the disaster. Here's a clip. Fifty years ago, a roaring avalanche of coal waste crashed into a school and 18 houses in the South Wales village of Abervan. Death and destruction were wrought in a few unbelievable minutes. It was a race against time to rescue survivors. I was gasping for breath because the air was getting less and less. Um, But at least I had that pocket of air. Uh, but the panic, I think, set in, really. What, how was I going to get out? I'm sure there's somebody on there, he was shouting. And when he dug onto my stomach, I could feel the air coming into me. Oh, it's, it's just something out of this world. Like, and I could take a breath, like. 116 children and 28 adults were killed. Not a day goes by that any of us ever forget this terrible disaster. It lives with you and it's as vivid as if it was yesterday. She went through a lot when she was a little baby and to come through all that and then this happens. Why? Why does it happen? But it's no good thinking too much about that. You've got to get on with your life and we've all helped one another really over the years and we always will do. The documentary's producer is Steve Humphreys and he popped into our offices a few days back to talk to me about the making of the programme and his experiences of visiting Abervan 50 years on. Steve, could you just give us a quick overview of exactly what happened at the Abervan disaster? Well, the Abervan disaster was one of the worst disasters involving children in 20th century Britain. It happened on the 21st of October uh, 1966 at 9.15 in the morning and uh, Abervan was a small mining village and one of the seven slag heaps overlooking the village uh, collapsed onto the school and the classrooms inside. 
this caused terrible loss of life, particularly among the children. How many people actually were killed? Uh, there were 116 children killed and 28 adults. That was roughly half of all the people in the school. So roughly half of the children did escape. Um, but basically, the, the school was enveloped in this sludge full of stones, which hit the school at about 70 or 80 miles an hour. It was like a tsunami, uh, the slag heap coming down the valley, which was quite steep, and then it impacted on the school. And for the programme, I know that you've, you've actually been interviewed a number of people who were involved in, in the Aberfan disaster. What kind of recollections do they have nowadays of what happened to them 50 years ago? They've got very vivid uh, recollections. In fact, I'd say they're haunted by it. Uh, it's something that they can never forget because it was such a terrible shock. It came completely out of the blue. It was unexpected and obviously had such tragic consequences. So it's something that they often don't talk about very much because it's too painful, which was part of the mission of this film, really, was to get as many people as possible to tell their stories because this is the last major anniversary when people will be alive to tell them. And you, you said it, obviously a lot of people don't like to talk about what happened to them. So how did you go about trying to get them to open up about a story that, that is still very painful? Uh, it was incredibly difficult. It's probably the most difficult thing I've ever done as a historian uh, because to begin with, people understandably said no. Um, but what changed it was I met a man called Jeff Edwards who recently was the mayor of Merthyr, who was the last boy taken out from the Aberfan disaster. He was buried alive for 90 minutes. They spotted him through his shock of blonde hair and carried him out to safety. He was haunted by it all his life. But later on, he went on to be mayor. But he wanted the story to be told. And so he began to introduce me to fellow survivors. And once I'd got the agreement of a few people to talk, then more and more agreed. And so a number of people who'd never told their stories before or not fully before uh, agreed to be interviewed. You did some research, obviously, about Aberfan before you started the project. Did your understanding of what happened change having actually spoken to people involved? Yeah, it did in, in, in various ways. One thing that surprised me was a good thing, in a way. Most people tend to think almost all the children died in Aberfan and very few managed to escape. But actually, um, there is quite a few miraculous survival and heroic rescue stories. Um, and I was really proud to be able to document them. And some of them weren't spoken about because it was such a taboo subject. And one, for example, is where a fireman called Len Haggett arrived on the scene and saved the life of a boy called Phil Thomas, who was buried alive. Len never told the story of what happened, even to his wife that evening or anybody at all. So the story wasn't really known. Uh, and it was only when we interviewed and filmed the boy whose life he saved, Phil Thomas, that we put the two together. So what we were able to 
to do in the film at the end is reunite them on camera and Phil was able to thank Len for saving his life. And it was a really moving and emotional moment. I suppose there's, there's an interesting difference between the people you were speaking to who would have lost a child and the people who survived. Did any of the survivors feel any kind of guilt? Yeah, they did. I think the, the whole community was haunted by survivors' guilt. And that was one of the reasons why they didn't want to talk about it, because the, uh, the stories would be heard by those who'd lost their loved ones. And so it was kind of repressed for understandable reasons. I think the other reason that many didn't talk is it was still an era of the stiff upper lip, very different to today, where we understand that talking about things can help a bit. It wasn't that atmosphere they were brought up in. So a lot of the stories were not talked about. This was such a monumental disaster that impacted on this, this small place. What kind of help did they receive from either, say, the government or from maybe charitable bodies? There was an initial attempt uh, by the Tavistock Clinic to send some uh, counsellors down, but they weren't well received by the community. They didn't want professional middle-class uh, people there. There were some early attempts at counselling uh, and therapy, but not very much. Basically, the people got comfort from their religion and from their friends and neighbours. But it wasn't really spoken about very much. They just got on with their lives. There was a huge fund set up uh, to help the people of Abavan after the disaster. And it collected more money, over a million pounds, than almost any other fund up to that point. It really touched the hearts uh, of the nation. So many people gave money to the people of Abavan. The children got lots of presents. But scandalously, some of that money went to the National Coal Board to pay for the removal of the tips, which was a source of great anger and discontent for many years, justifiably so, in Abavan. And actually, that, that brings me on to another point about, clearly this, this was not a deliberate act, but was anyone culpable for this disaster? Could it have been prevented? Yeah, it, it could have been prevented. Uh, the National Coal Board, who were ultimately responsible, claimed that they had no knowledge of the streams that were running underneath the slag heap that, that were one of the prime causes of what happened. But it was well known to the local community and to the NCB that there was water there, that it was a danger. There'd been petitions from the villagers about it. Some of the parents were worried. Uh, the local council raised it as an issue. So the National Coal Board was ultimately responsible for it uh, and was very quickly deemed to have behaved very, very badly and irresponsibly, particularly the chairman, Lord Robins. Was anyone brought to account for this? No. Not really. That's one of the scandals of Abavan, is that nobody really lost their job. And so the people you're speaking to nowadays, obviously they still feel grief, but do they also feel anger about what happened? Yeah, I think there is still a lot of anger in Abavan about that, because it was a tragedy that cost so many lives. Uh, the government and the NCB behaved so badly over it, and the community feel very exploited uh, about that. I think the grief, in my experience, the grief was stronger than the anger. 
the, the, the sense of the loss of a child is something that is very difficult to get over in life. But the grief and the anger go together. And what did this tragedy mean for Aberfan itself? I mean, clearly it impacted on the population. Did, did people stop moving away? Did it affect the economy? Did it, what did it actually mean for the people living there? A few people did move away, some as far as Canada and Australia, almost to just physically escape from the tragedy that they'd been involved in. Most people didn't because they were dependent on husbands and fathers working in the mines. Merthyrvale Colliery carried on and that's where most people worked. But there was an abiding sense of, of pain. I think perhaps people might have wanted to move away, but they just couldn't. And when you go to Aberfan now, do you get any sense that this is a place touched by tragedy? If a visitor went there and didn't know anything about the story, would it seem any different to any other village? I think it, it does. Uh, there's a, a children's cemetery on the hill overlooking Abavan, which is very visible. There's a memorial garden where the school used to be. And, yeah, when I went to Abavan, I felt very apprehensive, actually, about having to talk to the people about this tragedy. I wondered if I'd taken on too much to try and get them to tell their stories because there is an atmosphere still, I find, about Aberfan knowing its history uh, when you walk through there. Aside from all the tragedy and the grief, is there also an element that this is a story of survival because people had, did have to carry on, the, the village had to carry on. Do you get that sense of the story as well? Absolutely. I've got huge respect for the people of Aberfan and the strength and the way that they dealt with this disaster. I think they've dealt with it in an incredibly dignified way. For example, an extraordinary self-help group called the Young Aberfan Wives was set up in the aftermath of the tragedy, uh, made up largely of mothers who'd lost their children. And they met every week and have met every every week for the last 50 years, uh, putting on events, going on trips, raising money for charity, uh, just generally boosting the morale of the local people, in particularly the women. And it was a real privilege, actually, to be allowed in to their meetings and film with them and to film with the woman who principally set it up, Marilyn Brown, who lost her daughter, Jeanette, in the disaster. And just finally, what do you think the people of Aberfan would like the 50th anniversary to mean? You know, what, how would they like it to be commemorated? I think they'd like to be remembered for their strength and dignity in the way they've dealt with it. I don't think they want it ever to be forgotten because it was such a terrible tragedy where they lost their children uh, and they don't want anything like that to ever happen again. That was Steve Humphreys. Surviving Abavan airs tonight, the 20th of October, at 9pm on BBC4. And it will be available on BBC iPlayer after that. Steve has also written a piece about Abavan for the November issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Also in this month's edition, we have articles on Lady Jane Grey, Lenin's famous train journey, Churchill and the atom bomb, the Norman Conquest, and a whole lot more. You can get hold of our November issue in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, 
we currently have a great deal available for new direct debit subscribers in the United Kingdom, where you can pick a free book worth £25, as well as save 33% on the shop price. To take advantage of this offer, please visit buysubscriptions.com forward slash HTP209. And the offer ends on the 31st of December this year. And now it's time for this week's history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. It has been announced that the A-level in archaeology is to be scrapped. AQA, the only exam board offering the subject, has stated that there will be no new entrance for the subject at A or AS level. The announcement follows news that the history of art and classical civilization A-levels are also to be cut. An online petition has been launched in an attempt to reverse the decision, backed by Time Team presenter Tony Robinson. Robinson has criticised the move as a barbaric act, arguing that incredibly valuable and important subjects are being cast into the fire. Mike Hayworth, director of the Council for British Archaeology, stated, This is disastrous news for archaeology. Another vital route into the study of the subject is being removed. AQA defended their decision, stating that it has nothing to do with the importance of these subjects and won't stop students going on to do a degree in them. Our number one priority is making sure every student gets the result they deserve. And unfortunately, the number of very specialist options we have to offer in the subject's exams creates too many risks on that front. In other news, two previously unknown chambers have been uncovered within Egypt's Great Pyramid of Giza. The cavities were found using scanning technology and 3D simulation during a major project to learn more about the structure, which was built in 2560 BC for the Egyptian pharaoh Khufu. We are now able to confirm the existence of a void hidden beneath the north face that could have the form of at least one corridor going inside the Great Pyramid, said the research team. Work to determine more about the exact size, shape and location of the chambers is set to continue into 2017. Meanwhile, a 15th century love ring, found by an amateur metal detectorist, has been sold for an undisclosed sum thought to be several thousand pounds. When I first found the ring, I couldn't believe my eyes, said detectorist Lee Rossiter, who uncovered the gold ring, inlaid with a ruby and emerald, in a field near Harrogate. My friend said it was far too yellow to be real gold and looked like costume jewellery, Rossiter told the BBC. He told me I should just throw it away, but the ring was relatively heavy and I thought I'd better ask the dig organiser. Luckily, he confirmed that this was definitely an antique ring, most likely Tudor gold. The ring was sold privately to an antiques dealer after local museums were unable to raise funds to buy it. Now just before we go, here's a reminder that tickets are still on sale for our History Weekend event, which takes place in York from the 18th to 20th of November. Speakers include some of the biggest names in British popular history, such as Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Simon Sebag Montefiore and more. Please head to historyweekend.com forward slash York for more details and tickets. Well, that's about it for this week, but please do tune in next time when we'll be talking to the veteran broadcaster John Simpson and finding out about Stalin's interventions in Soviet science. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. 
Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook where you'll find us at History Extra. And for more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com. It's packed with articles, quizzes, image galleries and much more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.